I invite you to find your Bible one more time to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1049. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in the middle of Matthew chapter 20 this morning. I'm going to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, the shadow of the cross, Matthew chapter 20, and we'll begin reading in verse 17, Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. And this is what the word of God says. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Many years ago, while traveling, Gretchen and I discovered one of my favorite pieces Of Christian art. In this picture, the artist depicts Jesus as a toddler standing beside his earthly father Joseph in the carpentry shop. Joseph is busy at his workbench with his hammer, and Jesus is standing by his side holding nails in his hands. And subtly, the artist portrays sunlight penetrating through the door into the carpentry shop forming behind Jesus the shadow of a cross. This artistic rendering reminds us of the emphasis of this passage that we have just read, that Jesus indeed lived in the shadow of the cross. The Passover celebration that will take place in Jerusalem is approximately two weeks away, and Jesus' activity in the Gospel of Matthew is moving him closer and closer to his triumphant and resolute entrance into Jerusalem. And there, through his suffering and death, Jesus will become God's Passover lamb. This passage that we've read is the third of four predictions that Jesus will make regarding his suffering, death, and resurrection. And unlike the previous announcements, Jesus makes references to the involvement the Gentiles will play in these events, as well as the specific nature of his torment and execution, mocking, flogging, and crucifixion. Both his words and the truths they convey are simple, they're clear, and they're explicit. This passage is not hard to understand. For Jesus was speaking not in a parable or in figures of speech, but in very ordinary language. He was not revealing a mystery or explaining deep theological truths. He was simply stating to his disciples what would soon become historical fact. Jesus always lived in the shadow of the cross. And in this passage, we see God's surprising and glorious grace expressed in the sacrifice of his son. In his mercy, 
God ordained that his son would be murdered by sinful men for the sake of your salvation and mine. And as Douglas Sean O'Donnell writes, what is significant here is that Jesus assures his first disciples and all those since that his violent death was not a meaningless accident of history, but part of God's predetermined plan, and that Jesus was not a helpless victim, but a knowing partner in this divine strategy. Friends, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ stands at the center of Christian faith. It was the very reason that Jesus came to earth. His first recorded words were, I must be about my father's business. And among his last words before his death were the phrase, it is finished. Every part of Jesus's life and every part of Jesus's ministry was lived in the shadow of the cross. So would you notice with me, first of all, in verse 17 and the beginning of verse 18, the resolve of Jesus. Matthew writes, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now, according to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 1, Jesus had finished his Galilean ministry and had crossed into Perea on the other side of the Jordan River. And as Jewish travelers from Galilee often did in order to avoid going through Samaria, Jesus traveled down the east side of the Jordan and crossed over to Jericho. And from there, he would travel up to Jerusalem. Now, Jericho is near the northern end of the Dead Sea, which is approximately a thousand feet below sea level. And while Jerusalem is only 14 miles west of the Dead Sea, it is at an elevation of 2,500 feet above sea level. And so it makes this trip that Jesus and his disciples are on very difficult from Jericho to Jerusalem. And that's why the text says that he was going up to Jerusalem. Now you'll notice in verse 17 that Matthew says that as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And the very fact that he took them aside by themselves indicates that Jesus and the disciples were traveling with others. And according to Matthew chapter 20 and verse 29, Matthew says that they left Jericho on this journey up to Jerusalem and a great crowd was following him. Some in that crowd had been probably following him for some time, while others were probably just part of the thousands that were making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. But what is important to note in this text is that Matthew's focus in these verses on Jerusalem fits with the increasing opposition that Jesus was experiencing from the Jewish leaders, and it points to the inevitability of Jesus' death. It is also important to note that as Jesus' public ministry was coming to an end, he spent the majority of his time within the private instruction of his disciples. And so Matthew says that he pulled the 12 disciples aside, and in verse 18, Jesus says to them, See, 
we are going up to Jerusalem. Now, the word see that is used in the ESV is translated in other translations, the word behold. And as Matthew often does, he uses a an attention-getting word to wake us from our slumber and to make sure that we pay attention to the events that are beginning to happen. And so this word see is used as an exclamation, as a means of calling special attention to something of importance. And in this context, it carried the idea of resolution, and it carried the idea of conviction. Jesus was resolute in what he was getting ready to say to his disciples, and Jesus was resolute in his journey and pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And in his gospel, Luke actually describes the determination that Jesus had in going to Jerusalem and confronting his enemies. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, this is how Luke describes Jesus' resolution to go to Jerusalem. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The prophet Isaiah described it this way, that his face was as a flint. He was determined. He was resolute. Jesus knew from the very beginning that he was facing the cross and that the cross was always in the distance of his life and of his ministry. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 and 6, the prophet Isaiah describes in great detail the resolve of Jesus to go to the cross. And this is what he writes in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 and 6. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He was resolute in facing the cross. And you'll notice in verse 18 that Jesus did not plan to go alone. Look at what the text says. He looked at the 12 disciples, pulling them aside from the rest of the crowd and said, see, we, we are going up to Jerusalem. One commentator was very helpful in understanding this phrase, he said, Jesus specifically addresses the men to whom he gave the promise of Matthew 19, verse 28, if you'll remember when Jesus promised the disciples that they will rule and reign with him. And he says, these are the same ones who in competitive pride, Jesus will confront in chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. This suggests that none are in greater need of pondering the meaning of the cross than the leaders of the church. It's a sobering reality, isn't it? Who of all people needs to ponder the greatness of the cross? The leaders of the church. Because if the leaders of the church lose the focus of the cross, everyone under their leadership will suffer. The only kind of leadership, the only kind of ministry that matters is a cross-centered leadership, a cross-centered ministry, the kind of leadership and ministry that Jesus exhibited himself. 
And so Jesus says, you are a part of this. You are going to Jerusalem with me. You are going to witness and experience what I'm about to endure. And it's important to recognize why Jesus would say this to his disciples. The disciples, as we've seen as we've journeyed through the Gospel of Matthew, and as we'll continue to see in the Gospel of Matthew moving forward, we're struggling to accept the idea of a suffering and dying Messiah. In their minds, Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman government and establish his own kingdom. And so in their minds, in their hearts, it was absolutely suicidal and foolish for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. They knew what was going to happen to him there, what awaited him there, and this was not part of their plan. This is not what they thought the Messiah should be doing. Now Mark, in his account of this scene, is very helpful He records, actually, that Jesus, in making this pilgrimage, was walking ahead of the disciples, that the disciples were not even around him. He was ahead of them. And that the disciples were amazed and afraid as they sensed the strain and the turmoil in the life of Jesus. And this is how Mark records this scene in his gospel in Mark chapter 10 and verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Listen to the text. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. So there he was, walking ahead of the disciples. And the disciples from the rear view could see the turmoil that Jesus was in, the burden that he was carrying. And some of them were amazed at what they saw. And others were afraid of what they saw. And the word amazed that Mark uses to describe this encounter refers to great astonishment or bewilderment. And it even emphasizes the idea of being immobile because of your fear. It denotes a complete inability to comprehend and react to what is taking place. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been paralyzed by your fear? Unable to think, unable to act, unable to move? And this is how Mark is describing the disciples as they watch Jesus journeying to Jerusalem and as Jesus pulls them aside from the crowd and says to them, see, behold, pay attention, We're all going to Jerusalem. For almost three years, these men had been eyewitnesses to Jesus' miraculous power in his authoritative teaching. They had abandoned everything to follow him. And now in their minds, it was hopeless. They were scared. They were bewildered. They were paralyzed by fear. They could not comprehend Jesus' resolve to go to Jerusalem. And as if they didn't know what to do, John records in John chapter 11, verse 16, that in that moment, Thomas, you know, 
Thomas, doubting Thomas, the one who would doubt that Jesus actually rose from the grave. In that moment, when Jesus pulls them aside and they're paralyzed by fear, John records that Thomas is the first to speak, and this is what he says. Well, let us also go that all of us may die with him. They didn't know what to do. So if Jesus is going to die, let's just go die with him. Paralyzed by fear. And could I remind you this morning that it's at this point in the account that you and I need to remember that what amazes the disciples and what amazes us in our life, what is difficult for us to comprehend, what paralyzes us by fear, listen, is the wisdom of God. It is the wisdom of God. Because Luke reminds us in his gospel through Jesus' words that what Jesus is doing and what he is taking his disciples to witness and see is nothing more than the divine plan of the triune God in the councils of eternity past. It is the wisdom of God. What paralyzes you in fear? What is difficult for you to comprehend is the wisdom of God. Listen to how Luke records it in Luke chapter 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. That's the key. According to Jesus, going to Jerusalem was not an accident. According to Jesus, going to Jerusalem was not to be a part of an unexpected trap by his enemies. According to Jesus, going to Jerusalem was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now, friends, I'll remind you this morning that Jesus and his work on the cross is often referred to by some theologians as the scarlet thread of redemption. Meaning that Jesus and his work on the cross is the red thread that traces all the way through all 66 books of the Bible. That it is the central truth around which every other truth is woven. And so as a result, the storyline of the entire Old Testament with its types and its symbols points to the New Testament and the fulfillment of all of those types and symbols and the work that Jesus would accomplish in Jerusalem on the cross. A substitutionary death for the sins of a world that could never satisfy God's wrath on its own. That is the storyline. That is the theme. And so through Moses, God predicted that none of the Messiah's bones would be broken. Through the psalmist, he predicted that on the cross, the Messiah would be pierced, that lots would be cast for his garments, that he would be given vinegar to drink, that he would cry out in pain, that he would rise from the dead, and that he would ascend to heaven. The prophet Zechariah predicted the Messiah's entering Jerusalem on a colt, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, his desertion by his friends, and his being pierced. And when Jesus was only a few weeks old and was brought by his parents to the temple to be presented to the Lord, the godly Simeon prophesied to Mary about her son. And in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, this is what Simeon said. 
And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And so he prophesied to Mary what would happen to her son. And John the Baptist, he prophesied in the announcement of Jesus' ministry in John chapter 1 and verse 29. The Bible says, in the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Peter, in his epistle, and writing to the believers of his day who were under severe persecution, reminded them of all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, and how Jesus was the reality and the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And do you see what's happening here, friends, in the storyline of the Bible? From Moses to all of the minor prophets to the New Testament and the prophet Simeon, to John the Baptist and his prophecy, to Peter pointing to those prophecies. It is a thread of redemption in the work of the Lord Jesus on on the cross, weaving the whole Bible together. And how does the Bible end? How does it end in this thread and trace of redemption? It ends with this picture in Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 12 of John seeing everything that Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament prophesied about being a reality. And John writes in Revelation 5, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory. This is the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, it is the cross in his work. And the disciples knew that they were going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with Jesus, but they did not comprehend that Jesus himself was God's Passover lamb. They were thinking lion. Jesus was thinking lamb. They were thinking kingdom. He was thinking sacrifice. 
They were thinking glory. He was thinking suffering and death. And do you know that the Bible records even after his resurrection, the disciples still didn't get it? That on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27, Jesus began with Moses and all of the prophets and taught his disciples the things concerning himself. What's the point? He was resolute in going up to Jerusalem. He was resolute in facing the cross because it was there that he would offer himself as a sacrifice for sin and accomplish God's redemptive plan. And so let me ask you this morning if you're a Christian. Christian, in this account, do you relate more to the disciples or to Jesus? Are you bewildered and immobilized because of fear? You know, they say that that is one of the greatest things that young people are struggling with more than anything else today. Fear. Fear of the future. Fear of the unknown. Consumed by it. Paralyzed by it. And I just wonder if that doesn't describe some of us in this room this morning. Immobilized and paralyzed by fear. Or... Can you relate more to Jesus? And are you encouraged by his example? And through his example, finding yourself to remain faithful to God and be resolved to live for God no matter what events, no matter what fears come your way. Oh, that's one of the greatest challenges of this passage, I think, friends. You don't know what the future holds. God's sovereign over your life. You're not. You don't know what it holds. But what you can do is follow Christ's example and have a conviction and a resolve deep inside your soul that no matter what happens and no matter what comes your way, you will live for the glory of God. You will be faithful to Jesus Christ. You will live in the shadow of the cross just like Jesus did, living a cross-centered life. You can have that kind of resolution. You can have that kind of conviction deep in your soul through the example of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And dear leaders, dear brothers in Christ, or those who aspire to be a leader, are you resolved, like Jesus in the core of your being, to have a cross-centered ministry? Because I would say to you, then if the cross is not the center of your ministry, you don't have one. Not a real one. Well, we not only see the resolve of Jesus. Would you notice with me at the end of verse 18, in the beginning of verse 19, the rejection of Jesus. Matthew writes, And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. As Jesus continued to prepare his disciples for what they were about to witness and experience in Jerusalem, he exercises his omniscience and he adds details of his suffering and death to the prophecies of the Old Testament. And notice what he says. He says that the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. 
The title Son of Man is used 80 times in the Gospels. It's an Old Testament title that signified the divinity of Jesus, and it emphasized his incarnation and his humiliation. Now notice what is happening in this text with these words from Jesus in verse 18 and 19. He is speaking with absolute certainty. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look, the word will is used three times in these two verses. And the word delivered is used twice. And so he's speaking with certainty about these events that are about to take place. And you'll also notice that though Jesus did not mention Judas, the disciple who would betray him, he did predict that he would be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes. Now, the Jewish priesthood was composed of several ranks and levels. And by the New Testament times, in the time of the life and ministry of Jesus, a group had developed among the priesthood called the chief priests. And the highest position within this group of priests was called the high priest. And that position was often handed down from father to son. So this was the highest of the group of priests. And the scribes that Jesus mentions were the next group of importance among the Jewish religious leaders. They gained their positions by learning they were considered the authorities on the Old Testament, on the law of Moses, as well as all of the thousands of rabbinical traditions that had been developed over the past several hundred years. The scribes were often called lawyers or rabbis or doctors. And you'll recall in the Gospels that the scribes are always closely associated with the Pharisees. And Jesus says that together, the chief priest and the scribes composed this group of religious and intellectual leaders who hated him and were opposed to him because he threatened their hypocrisy and ungodly system of power. And they would work together to destroy him. Now, because Rome did not allow subject nations to impose the death penalty, the chief priests and scribes, as Jesus says in verses 18 and 19, could only condemn Jesus to death. They could not execute him without Rome's approval. So notice what Jesus says in verse 19, that the chief priests and scribes will deliver him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, to carry out their murderous plan. And John records just this in his gospel. In John chapter 19, verses 12 to 16, he records the reluctance of the Roman governor Pilate to execute Jesus, and he also records the religious leader's coercion of Pilate to carry out the execution. And in John 19, verses 12 to 16, John writes, From then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Pilate rejected him. 
Judas rejected him. The chief priests rejected him. The scribes rejected him. The Pharisees rejected him. Will you? Will you? We not only see the resolve of Jesus and the rejection of Jesus, finally, we see the reconciling work of Jesus at the end of verse 19. Now, before I read this phrase, I pray that God would help us to see what Jesus says in the text about himself and what's going to happen fresh and new. The problem with a passage like this is you sit and you hear it and you read the passage and you see what the pastor is going to speak on and you check your brain out because you think you already know everything that it's about and that he's going to say. But I'll remind you this morning that the word of God is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces your hearts and your souls to heal you and correct you and to draw you closer to God. And even when you think you may know what it's going to say, it's the discipline of being a good listener to read and see and study the text fresh and new. So don't zone out on me and think you already know what I'm going to say. You may know what I'm going to say. You may not. You have to listen to find out. This is what he says. To be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Mark, in his account, do you know what he adds to Jesus' statement? He says that they will spit on him and kill him. Luke adds that he'll be shamefully treated. And so what Jesus does here in this passage in Matthew is he describes for his disciples the kind of suffering that he is about to endure. And it's the suffering that leads to his reconciling work on your behalf and my behalf allowing us to have a way to become reconciled to the God who created us. And as we think about his suffering, it is important to note what Scripture says about his suffering. When the Bible refers to Christ's sufferings before and during his crucifixion, listen carefully, it always refers to them in the plural, meaning more than one kind of suffering. Jesus' pain was not one-dimensional. It involved numerous kinds of suffering. And so Jesus says here in verse 19 that while he was being held by the Gentile Roman authorities, they proceeded to mock and flog him. Now, Roman flogging, often referred to as scourging, was done with a leather whip embedded with sharp pieces of bone and metal that tore deep gashes into the flesh as well as the organs and the bones of the victim. And the flogging or the scourging consisted of 40 lashes. And it was administered with such intensity that it often took more than one man to give the beating. And this flogging would have given tremendous shock to Jesus' body. It would have caused him to lose a tremendous amount of blood. In fact, many of the victims of flogging died before they ever got finished with the 40 lashes. And some of them died before they ever made it to the cross. 
And according to Matthew chapter 27, verses 26 to 30, after the flogging, the Roman soldiers began to mock him. And this is what Matthew says, that they took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole Roman cohort around him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and they took the reed and they began to beat him on the head with the reed. Half dead, they did this. To Christ, mocking him, flogging him. And it was only after this humiliation, look at the text, that Jesus says they took him away to crucify him. And can I remind you this morning that in his suffering, Jesus felt every sting of the reed that he was hit with. He felt every tear of the lash across his back. He felt the agony of his bruised and lacerated body trying to carry the cross out of the city to Golgotha. He felt the surges of pain as the nails were hammered into his hands and his feet. He felt the shock as the cross was raised high into the air and then dropped into the ground with a thud. He felt the anguish as his side was pierced with the spear and blood and water began to flow from him. He felt the dryness of his lips and his mouth as he suffered great thirst. And he felt the suffocation as he grasped and pushed himself up on the nails every time he wanted to take a breath. And the prophet Isaiah described his suffering in Isaiah chapter 53, saying that he was despised, he was rejected, he was pierced, he was crushed, he was oppressed, he was smitten by God, and he was afflicted. But do you know, out of all of that suffering, do you know what his greatest suffering was? Well, you get a glimpse of it in the garden when his disciples couldn't stay awake and pray with him and they came to arrest him. And Jesus spent that time in prayer to his heavenly father. And the Bible says through the gospel writers that he sweat great drops of blood. His greatest suffering was knowing all that he was getting ready to experience in those moments of prayer. And above it all, that he would suffer a guilt that was not his. That was his greatest suffering. Jesus suffered a guilt that didn't belong to him. He suffered the guilt of everyone who would ever be born in this world and of everyone who would ever live in this world. The one who knew no sin, Paul says, became sin for us. The one who had close communion and fellowship with the Father in eternity past was now hanging on the cross, bearing the weight of our guilt, our shame, our sin, 
and feeling his father abandon him in that moment. And he cries out in the midst of all of his suffering, his greatest suffering, his spiritual suffering. Father, why have you forsaken me? That was his greatest suffering. The suffering of your guilt. The suffering of your shame. The suffering of your sin. You and I nailed Jesus to that cross. Your disobedience and my disobedience, your rebellion and my rebellion nailed Jesus to that cross. He bore your guilt, your shame, your sin, so you could be reconciled to the God who made you. That was his greatest suffering. He suffered mentally. He suffered emotionally. He suffered physically. He suffered spiritually. And yet he willingly suffered. He knowingly suffered. He lovingly suffered. He voluntarily suffered. He says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. He did it voluntarily for you. And would you reject him? Would you turn your back on the one who did that for you? Would you continue in your sin and your rebellion? Would you continue pursuing the desires of your flesh and the ungodful passions in your life instead of pursuing the one who died for you to set you free? Would you continue to live for yourself and not live for him? Who else but Jesus, who else but the Son of God would do something like that for you? There's no one other than Jesus. No one. He's the only name under heaven by which anyone can be saved and reconciled to God. He's the only one. Notice how Jesus ends his words, friends, at the end of verse 19. It's, it's subtle. It's, if you're not careful, you'll, you'll miss it. You see what he says? And he'll be raised on the third day. His whole work ends in resurrection. His crucifixion was not the end. He died to conquer sin and the penalty of sin, which is death. And in his resurrection, he defeated death and he will never die. And because Jesus defeated death, you can defeat death through his work. Here's what I love about the Bible. It just reinforces truths everywhere you go. And in Philippians chapter 2, one of the greatest passages on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, Paul talks about all of that in Christ's humiliation. And here's how he ends that great Christological passage of Jesus' work on the cross. He ends it the way Jesus ends his instruction to the disciples in this passage. And this is what he writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how it ends. Those who tore his back up and flogging and then put a crown of thorns on his head and put a scarlet robe around all of those wounds of his flesh and bowed down to him, mocking him, saying, Hail the king, hail the king. On the authority of the word of God, do you know what those same people are going to do one day? They're going to bow down and say that he is Lord. And here's the reality of this passage of Scripture, friends. Every single person is going to bow down and say that Jesus is Lord. And you have the opportunity to bow now or to bow later. But one day, you will bow. And you will confess what the Bible says is true about Jesus, that he is Lord. And listen to this old-fashioned pastor. On that day, there will be no atheists. There will be none. And you'll have all of eternity to ponder in your pain and suffering and separation from God how you rejected Jesus Christ because he is Lord. Do you know what's amazing about this passage? At the end of Luke's account of this scene, this is what Luke says in Luke 18, 34. But they understood none of these things. They still didn't get it. Do you? Do you get it? Do you just have a theological appreciation of all of the nuances of the cross and the work that Jesus has done on it? Or do you have an appreciation that flows from your heart and soul and not just your mind for what Jesus did, for what it cost him to save you? Jesus lived his whole life in ministry in the shadow of the cross. Will you? Let's pray.